This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Happy Tuesday. Welcome back to Deconstructing the Myth Season 3, a season full of conversations about how to move forward with life during and after deconstruction. Today, I have Austin Knoll here. I'm really excited to have you. And you are the author of A Jumble of Crumpled Papers, A Church Kid's Journey from Confidence to Questioning to Christ. And you are the host of the Crumpled Papers podcast. And yeah, I think we're going to have a great discussion. You have so much that is so pertinent to the community that I serve that's in deconstruction. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, I'm really excited to talk about this. I know we've kind of been talking on social media, on Instagram, and seen each other's posts and each other's content, and mm-hmm. I think we're going to have a great conversation about all this. So thank you for having me again. Yeah. Can you just start off and tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm curious. I think I've read it, but where do you live? Where are you coming at us from? Of course. So I am, okay, I am originally from Los Angeles, California. That's where I was born and raised okay. for 20 years, and now... Uh, my family and I live in Austin, Texas. So I moved here okay. first, my my last year of college at UCLA, oh, because wow. everything was online and I was paying a lot of money for rent near there. <laughs> yeah. And I came out here to visit a relative and realized I could play, pay half the money for double the space. <laughs> so yes. I moved out here, and then my parents, my family. Uh, couldn't live without me so they came and joined me <laughs> oh wow that's really that's kind of neat I don't think yeah. my parents would up and move <laughs> we've moved all over and they're like we'll stay here we'll stay in Kansas you, yeah we're good you'll end up back here <laughs> so, have fun <laughs> exactly well tell us a little bit about you you know what are what do you like what do you do who is absolutely Austin? <laughs> so who is that's a, that's a deep question wow where do I go from there right off the bat um so Austin is I'm talking third person Austin is okay. a writer a now podcast host, a, I, so when I was at college at UCLA, I was studying film. So I am a screenwriter, uh, slash director mm-hmm. and I'm, I, I'm in, I'm a writer in general. Yeah. That's my biggest focus. So writing this book and writing scripts is kind of my, my forte. So that's my biggest passion. And Let's see. I mean, in regards to that, that's in regards to my professional life, what I love doing. Um, and my work basically now revolves around book stuff, my podcast, and uh, working on some some different film projects. And that's my entire time. And then, church wise, I was born and raised in church in LA. Uh, that's all I knew. My parents were converted in their, I think, in their twenties. Moving from from Texas and from Washington State, met in L.A., joined the church, or sorry, met in the church in L.A., Mm -hmm. and that's how I was born into it. And then for the first 18 years of my life, it was uh, same church, same friends, same group, same pastors, same lessons, everything, and that was my entire world. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit of background about where that all started. Yeah, and so getting a little bit more into maybe 
exact uh, some more of the details i guess of that faith background and spiritual journey to this point i mean people need to read your book to really get the fuller (laughs) picture shameless plug right but tell us a little bit about that because I when I read your book, I will just start off by saying this. So we actually had very um, different beginnings. However, mm-hmm. it was like reading it. I said, oh, I mean, this it's not foreign to me what you're saying, which is so interesting because I mm-hmm. went to a tiny church that did not have a youth group or any. I was like the only kid. <laughs> but it's oh, like wow. I knew of this, I guess, Christian culture. And I, Mm -hmm. I I honestly wanted it, you know, as a young person and wanted to be a part of that. And it's, it's so interesting to read someone who lived it and really embraced it. But then there were some problems that came along the way. So, uh, was it a non-denominational church or did it have a certain affiliation? It was non-denominational. Yeah, it was non-denominational. So, you know, when asked what our church believed, we would simply say, oh, we follow the Bible. As if that explained everything. Yeah, <laughs> um, <you're> right. <laughs> but yes, non-denominational. And so, yeah, I mean, so, so to set the stage here, my book is what many books, I think, in the genre kind of set out to do genre-wise. And that is being half memoir, half kind of reflective look at uh, the, the different ways that churches operate and the things that are good about it and things that are bad, all told through my experience. And... Mm-hmm. um. It's I mean, the beginning of my life. I, I'd say the first, the first sixteen years of my life, more or less, were living in. I think what a lot of people can relate to as whatever their church situation is, mm. is living in a spiritual environment that, because you have been in it for so long, or born into it, or raised in it, you take at complete face face value because that's what you were taught to do, and everything that you experience in there, everything you learn, everything you're taught to do is just the norm because that is what it's always been. And you have mm-hmm. been told that things may be not normal or weird or not healthy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, there were so many things just, I mean, I, I was, I was the, the stereotypical uh, homeschooled Christian kid whose entire life revolved, revolved around Sunday church sermons Sunday after school, small groups, Wednesday midweek meetings, Friday night youth devotionals. That was my entire schedule. And I, and I loved it because I thrived in it because that's what I knew. That was, that was a big part. And this is a big part of my book too, is when you're born into a community like that, especially, I mean, especially when you're born into it, right? And you're raised in it, it has a major role in shaping your identity as a person. Mm, Whereas yeah. I think regardless, if you join a church or a spiritual community in your twenties or thirties or forties, it's still, you still at some point, if you're there long enough, it, it, parts of that, the, ide- the ideologies, the ways of life, whatever, they become a part of who you are. Yeah. But when you're in it from a young age, it becomes the foundation of who you are, where mm. it is in many ways, the lens through which you perceive the world and perceive the things that you're learning outside. Um, And when those things are maybe off a little bit or not as healthy as they may appear, that can warp a lot of different things, not just in church, but just in different aspects of life. And that's what my book navigates is going through chapter by chapter, different aspects of my life and progressing through as I get older and older and go through different experiences that help highlight parts of my church and therefore parts of my ideologies and my perception of the world that 
were off that I thought were normal for a long time and ended up not being healthy and having to work through that and then being caught up at a place where I was suddenly aware that there were so many things that weren't healthy that I had to make a decision of, okay, what do I do now? Because there's enough here that is showing me that I need to think about what my next move is in terms of where I go, what direction I'm looking towards, what I believe in, because so many things weren't what I believed with such certainty when I was a kid. Yeah. And that's the title. A, a jumble of crumpled paper is, is a metaphor for, I always say this in my podcast, it's, a crumpled paper is a metaphor for any idea or belief that we, have, we may have at one time believed with full certainty, but at some point I've come to realize that that idea may not be as accurate or truthful or healthy as we once thought it was. Mm. So we now have to, we now are set with the task of having to dive into it intentionally and figure out if we need to unlearn it, relearn it, rethink it, take parts away from it that aren't healthy and recover that more pure truth of whatever idea or belief or practice that is. Mm-hmm. And so a jumble of comfort papers is what I was left with at that stage of realizing I don't know where I'm going now in the future, but I know I can't be where I am now because of the things that I've realized that aren't what I believe mm-hmm. about God, church, faith, myself. And I was left with a jumble of crumpled papers of all these ideas and beliefs I had to work through now to discover what I really did believe about all these things. Yeah. So in a lot of words, that's, that's, that's the context. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. And I think that's, I, I think that that's kind of uh, where a lot of us find ourselves. It's really interesting to read other people's journeys while mm-hmm. we're on the journey because I, and tell me if, if this is what I'm hearing from you too. It's like, we know where the thing went wrong to a degree now, sure. but I, for me, I'm like, I don't know how to make it right or if it can be made right. I don't completely know the way forward, I guess. I don't know if mm-hmm. you would still be in that. That's kind of the impression I got, I guess, at the end of your book, at least there. It was like, okay, we'll see. We'll see what happens yeah. now. Um, but that's one thing I'd be interested before we get into some of the specific topics covered in your book. Would you tell us if you feel comfortable your current spirituality, how you currently think of, um, you know, Christianity where you, I guess I, I hate making people label themselves, but if you <laughs> could just so that our listeners kind of can get a feel for where you're at. And mm-hmm. I'd also love to hear your thoughts on church and the yeah. idea of the institutionalized church. So that's like three questions in one. Just go. No, that's great. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll attack them one by one. So where I stand and kind of where I am in terms of my beliefs or Christianity or whatever is uh, I, and my book kind of delves into this too, where, where you can tell, and I hope, because that's where I was authentically while I was writing it, was when I was writing the book, I didn't know where I was going to end up because I was writing mm. it in the middle of it. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the beauty of it because there was no predisposition of, of where I think I needed to land. So there was the genuine freedom to go wherever I was authentically being drawn by the process. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, of course there were things that I believe still that did line up with what I was taught, like foundational things about the Bible and church and, and God, there were things that, you know, weren't bad. It wasn't all bad. And there were things that I still held on to. And mm-hmm. some of those things I've since dropped and many of the things I've, I've still maintained. So I would say I'm definitely still a Christian. And I think what I define that as is different because um, I think the biggest difference is that my definition of Christian before was, of course, you know, 
belief and faith in God and Jesus and knowing these things, but it was heavily entwined with an allegiance to a church. Hmm. Um, and I never, I never thought about it that black and white when I was there, but once I was removed from that, once I left that church and gave myself some space from any systematic organization like that, I realized, oh, I'm still, I still believe the same things. I'm still a Christian. If anything, this process has allowed me to, to gain some deeper wisdom and insight and faith in the things that I thought I knew to a deep level, but really didn't yet. Mm. Um, I still have the same, many of the same values, many of the same beliefs. Um, this isn't to say, of course, Christians and church are, are, can be synonymous and often are for better or for worse sometimes. But mm, yeah. I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm definitely still a Christian and believe certain things. And if anything, I think the outcome of this where I had it all on the line where I was totally okay with at the end, not, not aligning myself with that anymore. If that's what the outcome was, but the outcome for me ended up being authentically that I landed with Christianity still, but many redefined ideas and beliefs about the different aspects. um, and I guess prerequisites, I don't know of a Christian faith. Mm. Um, so then your second question about church going into church, um, that's a, a big aspect, I mean, clearly, of Christianity itself. That's one of the biggest things, especially a lot of people deconstructing their faith and simply just working through things. When, 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 when church comes into question, that's when a lot of, I think, barriers get put up and a lot of defenses because that is the bastion, the foundation of a Christian faith. That's what's been recognized. And I think, I believe it should be. The problem is, the problem is the way that churches currently operate, I believe are working completely antithetical to the way that would actually be a healthy way to do that. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I believe the church is called to be a staple and a place of, grace and love and forgiveness and inclusion and acceptance and guidance but it's unfortunately many of them and thus as an entire entity it's failing to a great degree which is dealing a lot of damage a lot of pain a lot of hurt and a lot of aversion to the very things that they should be promoting which is a really unfortunate thing Hmm. okay well then this will be fun because i've as i as we go through some of these um topics you talk about i was want i was wondering if we could not only dive into what happened that was ultimately harmful and unhealthy but maybe brainstorm what a a better approach might be if you're willing to this is kind of off the cuff a little bit but that's great part of the reason is you know a lot of my guests um you know are not necessarily in the christian camp still even if they would still say they follow jesus and there's just some are but many are there's an emphasis away from church especially as an institutionalized um system right because Mm -hmm. people are like well these things have failed time to start over which i have been there i I ebb and flow on my thoughts on that (laughs) like every day but um part of it is because to me i'm wondering you know, we can say we want to distance ourselves from this, but if you're still a person of this particular faith, will you ultimately just replace it with something else? And if we're saying yeah. that we're against institutionalized Christianity, are we just going to kind of create the same thing in a different form, unaware 
that has many of the same problems. You know, I start to see these mm-hmm. deconstruction conferences pop up on my feed and like things that sure. seem, feel very, you know, here's a great speaker about faith, deconstruction, faith, you know, and I'm like, this feels very Christian, which is not a sure. bad thing or very churchy, not necessarily a bad thing, yeah. but it's mm-hmm. like we have, I think, you know, if we're not careful, it's just going to be a cycle that continues. And sure. I don't know what church is going to look like. I've, I've, I don't even know. I've, I've thought in the next hundred years, even what will church look like? Will church exist? What, Mm. you know, and I have no idea, but I'd love to brainstorm a little bit with you as we go through some of your specific examples, um, potentially of a way to maybe forge forward, but (laughs) I'm realizing I didn't really prep you for these questions. So, Oh no, I'm I'm all for it. Let's charge on. Seems to be my style sometimes. This is great. (laughs) So the first, (laughs) there we go. So the first one I wanted to talk about I actually saw you recently talked about this on your podcast, but there's a situation that really struck me in your book where you Mm -hmm. and a girl were interested in dating and Mm -hmm. really long to do it, you know, the quote unquote godly way, the way that's God honoring and got, you know, church leaders involved to kind of oversee this um, Mm -hmm. relationship. And it just sort of went terribly wrong <laughs> so could you oh, tell us a little bit about that and yes. then maybe we could talk about what a better way of handling it might have been absolutely so it's uh, at the time of recording this that was my most recent episode of the crumpled papers podcast that was mm-hmm. episode eight i think and that so to preface this right my jumble of crumpled papers and this whole book is getting to that point where I found myself with all these papers of ideas and beliefs that were crumpled up and I'm not sure where to go with them and then kind of how I processed them and where I went from there. And there, I believe in many people's people's experiences, no matter how you define that process, there is either a, but there's, there's either, there's either a gradual uh, series of events that, kind of slowly show you the cracks in a church system or your belief system, or it can be one big event that immediately faces you to confront, oh, I'm in an unhealthy environment. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was one main event that went over the course of a couple of years that then illuminated, okay, so there have been things going on for years and years and years that aren't healthy. And this is the climax of that. And it's, I'm kind of, being forced to see it in a timely, in, in a shorter time frame, if that yeah. makes sense. So, so like I said, I was homeschooled. I started homeschooling in 10th grade. Um, so I was in regular school long enough to be normal. Thank you very much. <laughs> so I had those social training wheels on before I went to homeschool. Okay. Um, just a side note, I wanted to put out there. I bet you were like and, the coolest homeschool kid too. Oh, I, I'm going to say I was because there's no one to tell you otherwise. So absolutely I was. <laughs> by a far margin. No. Um, and there was a girl in this homeschool class who, our homeschool class was taught by the main pastor's wife. And so all of our homeschool kids, there was only like, like, you know, maybe 10 of us or less that were all a part of our church youth ministry mm. or high school ministry. So there was a girl that I, I liked and quickly became aware that she liked me too. And being, I was 15 or 16, a church kid all my life, my, our 
uh, initial intention was, okay, we need to do this a godly way. We don't want to make any mistakes. We don't want to A, B, C, D, whatever. We don't want it to end in ruin or destruction or whatever. We're gonna, whatever. So we, I immediately went and oh, I went to my parents first, which uh, I think this is an important part of the whole, the whole um, story is that my parents and I are very close and I am very open with them, which ended up being very valuable in this situation that I'll get to. But the very first thing I did was go to my parents and say, hey, I like this girl. What should I do? And they gave me the advice of maybe, maybe talk to the head pastor about it and get some advice. Great. Okay. When I had breakfast with him and uh, within like an hour of the conversation, the end result was, uh, great. If you like this girl and she likes you and you guys want to set this up in a very healthy way, just cut communication, stop texting, stop talking for two weeks. And we were talking, we were, we were texting every day in the environment that we grew up in. And what I was talking about, the norm that I realized later just wasn't normal, but was normal for us. Talking with a girl every day, texting every day was just, you know, playing on the edge of the gray area where, mm. where it would not be abnormal to be called out by somebody as, as, um, not having God first, not having God as a priority first because your your focus is being drifted to this, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and remind us, you maybe already said, how old were you guys? Can you remind us? Uh, we were, I believe we were 16. That's what I said okay. in my podcast. May have been so 15, but not, I think we were 16. It's not like some 10-year-olds or something. No, and that's an important part of the story too. Yeah. We were, we were mid-teens where yeah. in any other scenario, it's, oh, I like you, you like me. We're talking for a while. Cool, you're cool. Let's go on a date. Let's hang out. Maybe we'll start dating, right? Yeah. That's how it should be. Um, and another side note for this context is our goal, at least in the immediate future was not dating. It was maybe, I, I believe dating was both on our minds as a future aspiration, but in the context of the spiritual environment that we grew up in, dating was something that was kind of earned through, mm. um, you had to be baptized first off. You, you you were not allowed to date if you were not baptized. Oh, and, interesting. Okay. And if 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 if, if I, like I had friends throughout high school, middle school that were discovered to be dating outside of church with their friend in high at their schools, and it, it did not go well. They were either forced to break up with them if they wanted to become a Christian and get baptized in our church. They had to break up with their with their person. They had to go through multiple talks. They had they were encouraged to get that person baptized, or else it wasn't healthy. A lot of Whoa, a lot of things, <laughs> and that was normal. That's that crazy thing to me is just saying this. It was normal growing up because that's just yeah. oh, it makes sense. They're not baptized. They don't believe what we believe. They're not a Christian, so that can't be healthy for them because it's going to end in something. That's just what we were taught, and it's crazy. So when so, we were fifteen, six, yeah, go ahead. Can I, so yeah. it, this is just really interesting to me because I think for me growing up, it was like, well, you need to date a Christian. But it, that's this baptism. Was it baptism in any church? Was it baptism in your church, or how was that connected? If I can ask. Yeah, that. that's that's a whole. That's a good question because baptism. Our church believed that that the that the Christians we made we produced quote unquote were superior in some way, hmm. um, because whatever we taught the right things or we taught the right things to the right level, whatever yeah. <laughs> we had some more greater devotion. So. Um, yes, we could only date Christians, but we can only date Christians from our church. 
or oh our <laughs> group of, you know, our church yeah. was, was an organization. Yeah. So we had one region in LA, but it's, it's a, actually a worldwide organization of umbrella churches. So, um, but even, it's funny because even so, if I'm dating, say I'm dating a person, or want to date someone from a region of our church in, in Oregon or something, mm-hmm. it would be looked at as better than dating a Christian from anywhere else or a non-Christian if you ever dare. Yeah. But it'd be even better if you dated from our specific region because we have a, a reign on these guys. We know exactly what they're up to, right? Huh. Yeah. Um, so it was a hierarchy. Dating a non-Christian was the straight to hell no-no. Well, I mean, we didn't say that, but you know, the worst of the worst. Yeah. Um, dating a Christian from anywhere outside of our organization was really not great and we'd be persuaded or dissuaded, right? Um, dating a Christian from another region in our organization was, I guess, okay, but we're going to try to really encourage that person to probably transfer to our region, usually. Mm. Um, and then the best case scenario was, oh, you found someone that you've gone to church with for, your, for 10 years. Perfect. Mm. And I think that's, that's a, I mean, there's a lot of problems with that, but one of them is definitely a control, knowing, knowing and keeping a rein on what you believe and what your person believes and, and their direction in life is guided by your leaders in this church. Um, but a lot, that's a whole different tangent, but I'm glad you asked that question because that yeah. sets a lot of context too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, and we, we checked off the box of being in the same church, but there were, in, in my youth ministry at my time, the number of people, that, and there were, you know, quite a few, a good number of, of people in our middle and high school ministries, um, quite a lot of, a lot of people. And the number of people that were dating under the age of 18 in our church was zero. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. I outside of our church, this. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Outside of our church, maybe, I'm sure people were, and they were keeping tight-lipped about it because they didn't want anyone to know because once they knew and the leaders found out, they would be asked to break up with them, which is just terrible. <laughs> yeah. um, and it was heartbreaking. I knew a lot of friends that went through that, and it was just heartbreaking because it was their person for, for all I know at that time. And, you know, in high school, you're getting older and it's like this person, they really have a connection with, and it could turn into a great relationship and you'll never know because you were forced to break up with them for the church or because you wanted to get baptized, but they wouldn't allow you until you did this. Because according to them, breaking up with this person was cutting ties with your idolatry. Right. Mm. And like it presented in very twisted ways that would make sense to someone who was earnestly seeking Christ at a young age. Yeah. Um, and told by leaders who they trust that that's what that means. And that's how you define that is by doing this. Um, so, so dating for me and this girl was some future, I'm sure, desire in our hearts. I know for me it was, but it was not a thing of, oh, I'm hoping to date in the, in the next month. It was maybe a couple of years from now oh, wow. when we've really matured in our faith and have, have been, we have, oh my God, we have this whole term I didn't put in my podcast in the book. We have a term in our church called building which is the between phase between having an interest in somebody and that becoming known and actually being granted permission, quote unquote, to start dating them. There's a building period, which can last months. It can last years. And that's simply the period where you're being, where you and this person want to start dating, but you're usually being told by leaders or other adults or other peers or whatever that you're not ready yet. And you need to work on this and this and this in your mature, in your mature uh, maturity in your devotion, in your faithfulness, whatever. Um, and it's just used as, Oh, you're building, you're building your friendship, but no, you're not. You guys are close. You're ready to start dating. And dating is where you build your friendship. That's, 
you build your relationship. Dating is a try is, is a period where you're deciding if you're a good fit. If yeah. you're like this building period is like making sure, and this is the thing too, where when you're dating in our church, there's a high stakes to it where if you don't end up getting married and you end up breaking up, it's, it's, it doesn't, there's a lot of shame in that. Wow. And people look at you like, oh, you failed. And you feel like, oh, I failed. So that building Why? period is almost like, the building period is almost like a dating period, less, except you're not allowed to be close to each other as if you, if you were dating. Um, so when you're dating, it's as if, oh, you're already ready enough and you know, or at least you're, de- you're, you're, you've decided that, oh, I'm going to make sure that I give the best chance of us actually getting married, which can end up in a lot of unhealthy scenarios. Yeah, that's so <laughs> um, much pressure, really. The pressure is insane. Absolutely. And so all this context, all that pressure, all knowing what was ahead of us, now that we had simply just at 15, 16, all we knew was that, oh, I have feelings for this person and they feel the same way. Knowing what came as a result of that, once it became a bigger deal, our biggest aspiration was just to get advice at a low level and just navigate this godly and cautiously, mm-hmm. right? Um, so this leader at this, at this breakfast said, stop texting, stop talking for two weeks because you guys have been talking a lot. Get some time to take a breath for yourself and make sure you, you keep God first and realign yourself with God, whatever that meant. We were, we were, both, we were both baptized. So in, in terms of this church's standards, we were already in the okay. We were already baptized. Yeah. We've gotten that out of the way. We're not on the fringes of something. There's no, there's no, oh, I need to get baptized first. It's already happened. So we're already in that in group. Um, which just sounds bizarre as I say this. <laughs> it's no, so weird. Yeah, but um, it felt, I'm sure, reading your book, it was yeah. like, it's so real. And I didn't have this exact thing, but it's like, I remember thinking like, okay, here's the candidates that are available. Here's what it yep. has to look like. And you think you're doing this so that you're kind of saving yourself from heartache yeah. and hardship. And it's That's like, absolutely what it was. But But in the end, it's... Like you said, the pressure is insane. Mm-hmm. So anyway. It's so much pressure. And one more more contextual side note is the pressure and all of this, the shame and the guilt and all this unhealthy stuff that could result from all of that came from um, such a, I refer to it as a deferment to fear, mm. where in every action, every mindset, every decision, every belief, not every, but you know, most that govern these the big decisions, there was a deferment from those in quote unquote spiritual authority, right? To act out of fear. And I believe mostly out of, because it's out of love. They care for us as kids. Like these adults were people who were part of our entire lives. They're family to us yeah. and they're close friends. They grew up like my parents were part of the, you know, a ministry for 30 years and they're best friends and really close friends. So we trust each other. We're great friends in and outside of church, right? Just life friends. And they really care for us as kids. They really do because they've known us our entire lives. Yeah. Um, and it's authentic. I truly believe that still. But because of that, there is a fear of because of their own mistakes, their own baggage that will mess up and make mistakes, which we need to learn is completely okay. Mistakes is what you, yeah. helps you grow. Yeah. And when you're afraid of making mistakes and don't believe that, you know, I believe that, you know, God's grace has got you. If we're a church and we believe that and we preach that, why aren't we acting like God's got us? We make mistakes. We're good. We learn from mistakes. Mm, yeah. And they're like, but the, the, the fear of what will happen if we make mistakes um, resulted in them putting so many unnecessary 
roadblocks and regulations and rules and boundaries and hurtful stringencies on our lives to the point where it, we were being squeezed through a tube in many things and thrown through hoops. So um, that was more context. There's so many things I feel like I need to explain because it was so normal to me and everyone yeah. in my church was on the same page. And then I'm like, no, it's people were like, oh, wait, no, that's not normal. Yeah, yeah. Um, so to, to, to summarize, so this goes on for four years. The first, oh my gosh. The first couple that's months, the first, okay, first two weeks, first two weeks, right? It was said two weeks, no talking, no texting. Great. Did that. It was like that thing where it's hard, but also, you know, like you're doing the quote unquote healthy thing that I've been told is healthy and right. So it made the, the pain a little less hard. It's like, oh, I miss talking to her, but we both know it's for a greater cause. So wait two weeks and then we'll be off. Two weeks come and go. And I'm scheduled to have a meeting with another leader, a phone call. And he says, basically, oh no, keep going for whatever reason. I'm like, okay, is it because she's not ready? We weren't told what ready looks like, but I guess maybe because this period of silence was to make us ready. She's not ready yet. Cause I feel ready. Maybe I'm not ready. Maybe I'm doing something that I'm not aware of. That's just, I'm not ready yet. So two more weeks to get us ready. And then two more weeks and another week here. And it ended up being months, just no talking, no texting. And at this point, I always feel like I did, uh, my parents deserve to be nodded to here because they were, I was, you know, they were up to date with everything because I was telling them stuff. And once they really, obviously it was already weird at two weeks, Yeah. but in our, in our growing up, they've been a part of the church for 30 years. It was normal. So in a place where you view that as normal, it takes a little more to realize it's to feel like it's weird. So but at a point we did get to, okay, this is now weird. What's going on. And when they realized that, when we all realized that, they stepped in and began confronting these leaders and asking, what's the deal with this? What's going on? My dad had a meeting with the head pastor who talked to me and was asking him, like, I don't understand what's happening. Why can't they just go on a date or, or hang out or talk, text. <laughs> talk, oh, yeah. text in general, <laughs> right? And the leader felt, I think, encroached upon and, and you know, his, his authority or his say or whatever, his discernment. And he asked my dad, uh, I'm his leader. Do you not trust me? And my dad said, well, I'm his father. Do you mm. not trust me? And I always say that, and all the time I say this story, because I think that's such an important um, thing to point out because yeah. that says a lot about allegiances and trust. And the thing is, my dad absolutely trusted this leader. They had known each other for 30 years. And throughout, through this process, eventually, that is what broke down that trust. But at the time, he did. Yeah. And that's why I think this was – and because me, I'm 16, 15. I'm helpless in this situation because I don't know any better. So I would never yeah. be able to well, know for myself. Well, then that's one thing. I've had friends not in this situation but similar, yeah. dating-related. And the parents so fearful. And I, I do understand, of course, to a degree because, sure. you know, when hormones are involved and everything, you know, we're a little yeah. different, but at the same oh, time, yeah. if we say this child, we truly believe Austin has Christ in him. We truly see sure. what well, it's like, do we not trust the Christ in Austin mm-hmm. to a degree too? It's like, okay, do you not trust the leader? Well, do you not trust the father? Well, do you not trust Austin? Right. It's like, yes, thank you. At some yep. point, you're right. As I'm, as we're talking, I'm like, it's so interesting how fear gets kind of dressed up as holiness. And, and mm-hmm. it's not clear even as, cause I would still say I'm a Christian too. It's, it is sure. blurry sometimes where that yeah. line is, but it's just so much of this, I think is people perhaps operating under 
no, this is the holy thing to do, not realizing in our subconscious there's a lot of fear about losing control, like you said, or you guys just going crazy and or whatever. Absolutely. You know? And it's yep. just crazy because it's like, do we actually believe Christ is in people or not? <laughs> I don't know. Because anyway. that's a huge thing. I mean, I, once again, was born and raised in this church. And since I was young, every Sunday, every Friday night, sometimes on Wednesdays or Tuesdays, I would be meeting with my friends and peers, with these leaders, being taught things about God, church, the Bible, faith, Mm. these values, which I learned many were unhealthy, but many were healthy. A lot of the fundamental, simpler ideas were very accurate, I believe, and spot on healthy um, and truthful. Yet, when we're 16 and 15, after a decade and more and a half of being taught these values, once we're put in a situation where we're actually enabled, we're actually allowed to act out of those values and put them to practice, we're treated as if we have none of them. Mm, We're treated as if we've never been taught anything. And we've been under your guidance as leaders for a decade and a half being taught these things. So why now, when I'm actually old enough to start making my own choices out of those values that you should believe that you've imbued in us, if that's the right word, Mm -hmm. um, you act as if we walked out from the street and have never set foot in a church, right? so fascinating, yeah. Which is very... It doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and of course, that goes into another thing too is so many side notes, but it's all very important is the trust. If there's no trust in us as young people, members in general, which was the case in my church, very little trust given to us and acted as if we were trustworthy, then we will learn as young people, as older people, that we're not trustworthy, that we're not, and we're not going to trust ourselves. And a community of people, whether it's a church or a school or a family or whatever, or a workplace, a community of people who do not trust themselves um, will destroy themselves individually, mm. individually because they, don't, they, they will not know how to, nav- how to navigate life. And they will be so uh, dependent on people and on things that, that – and it's not their fault really. They've been taught that they're not allowed and not able and not capable yeah. and – that sets them up to be so vulnerable in a bad way to control and to advantage and to tons of things, which happens a lot in spiritual communities, unfortunately. Um, so went on for months. This Back to the story. So went on for months. <laughs> um, no talking, no texting. Because of we've established that intense pressure that comes when not just when you're dating somebody, but when, when it's known that you like somebody. Um, very quickly, right? As it happens anywhere, all my friends found out because I was telling my close friends and they told their close friends because in church, especially in this church, when stuff like that is kept so tight-lipped because of the fear of what will happen when people find out that you like somebody, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes out that, oh, there's a new crush, it's a huge deal because that's a huge deal in middle school anyway. But yeah, it's yeah. like, it's bigger here because bigger stakes and a bigger question of, Oh, I wonder what's going to happen. Are they gonna be able to pull through or is it going to end in complete disarray? Um, unfortunately, and people are hoping for the best for us, but that's not always how it works. So when people in our church found out, we, me and this girl became so insecure and self-aware because of the eyes on us and the pressure and the weight and so many varying opinions from people, unwarranted, unsolicited, um, 
that not only were we not texting or talking, when we saw each other in person at church, at homeschool, you know, several times a week, we were so insecure of ourselves. We couldn't even talk to each other face to face. We couldn't even approach each other oh, because, wow. I mean, and our homeschool was part of our church, right? Homeschool moms were church moms. Homeschool teachers were church leaders. So it feels like, it felt like everywhere we were, we were never under or never out of the watchful eye of somebody. And we were terrified and, and for months and over a year and a half, over two years, around two years, probably a little more, we acted complete strangers in person because we were sucked out of our minds. Um, and we had feelings for each other, which was the hardest thing to navigate because we could never communicate. Yeah. Um, started in 10th grade, went through about the first half of my freshman year in college. And at a certain point, you know, within the first year, my parents stepped in and her parents stepped in. We were both on the very same page and they said, okay, this is ridiculous. They can do their own thing kind of. Where dating still wasn't the thing because that was a little bit too much of a step uh, in contrast with our church, in contention with them. But they can hang out. Me and this girl hung out a lot for like about a year where we would hang out at my house. We would go places. We, it was great. Um, outside of church. Mm-hmm. In church, we still had to fall under, or it, we were at least too afraid not to step out of what the church was deeming the right guidance. So when we were out of church, our parents were king, where they should be anyway, anywhere. But uh, in church, we were strangers still. So there's a big, mm-hmm. unhealthy inward turmoil dynamic of we're so close and we're best friends outside. We step into the church building and we're like opposite sides of the room. Yeah. And in essence, by the end, it got so convoluted and there was so much fear and doubt in ourselves, uncertainty in each other, uh, distrust for different things because of the foundation set that it just ended up completely falling apart and complete fallout. And we, haven't talked in four or five years because it just fell apart. And we were, say we never ended up dating, we ended up being such close friends and best friends that it's such an unfortunate thing that we just yeah. uh, are completely uh, alienated from each other now because that's what happened. Because we were never given the wheels and the foundation to set up for successful relationship, friendship, not mm-hmm. even dating. And yeah. that's... That was the entire event that then led me to seeing, okay, this is unhealthy, clearly. Throughout those four years, there were many different things that were like, okay, that's not good. That's not good. I don't agree with that. Is that true? I don't think so. That's toxic. That's damaging. And a lot of those, I was able to see, okay, no, that connects to the church as a whole. And then once this whole thing ended in my freshman year of college, I was now stuck with nothing really positive and a whole lot of baggage and seeing, wow, I see this church entirely different light now. And I have all these crumpled papers of ideas, beliefs, whatever that I don't believe are true anymore. What do I do? Hmm. So that was a long story, but that gives you the entire context of what led up to that. Yeah, it does. And I think, you know, it, this is a specific situation for you. And we see this kind of pattern on a lot of things on people, Mm -hmm. Um, trying to navigate career choices, trying yeah. to navigate, um, honestly, especially I think in deconstruction, uh, which I'm primarily interested in, when people try to navigate theology, of mm-hmm. course, you see this kind of like, whoa, we have to have our hand on this 
all over the place and which to some degree i i do understand the fear there that there's a little bit of a different level per, perhaps um mm -hmm. because we're dealing with the core tenets of the faith often but again with this distrust of the person and and so i just wonder if you have any thoughts on what might it look like if a church were to be involved in some of these major life choices or what could be major life choices sure. um, in a more healthy way, or if the church should be involved? What are your thoughts? Mm -hmm. That's a good question for the church to be involved or not to be involved. And I, throughout this, and one of my couple papers was what role is this, does or should the church have, right? Mm -hmm. I, where I stand now with it is that I believe the church at its best, and what I believe it's called to be, can be such a healthy, invaluable asset in the life of a of a believer, of a Christian, right? Mm. And to many who are not Christians, I think that's a big aspect of a church as well is catering and and loving and knowing and helping and aiding those, depending on no matter what denomination or what religion they decide to, if they're non-religious or whatever, right? It doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter. Mm, yeah. um, but I believe in terms, of, in terms of church members with a church and the say they have over their lives or in their lives, I believe the church should be devoted to guidance and offering advice, help, aid uh, with a very open-handed approach, right? If I'm holding, holding my hand out to you, palm up, mm. open. I think many churches, my church, many people I've talked to, kind of have a closed fist approach where they're still holding something out to you. But when you reach out to grab it, they hold on to your hand where, mm -hmm. okay, you're accepting this. So now you're connected to me and where I go, you go, what I say, you say, and if you don't and I let you go, I'm letting you go. Meaning we're letting you off and we're, yeah. you're not accepted here or you're not allowed here or you're falling out of line with what we say is healthy. So you're, you're considered weak in your faith. You're considered immature in your faith, not a true Christian, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Guidance, I believe, should be the absolute top priority of the church, hands open, um, with no expectancy and no hold on the people who you're offering that to. It should be freely offered um, with the, once again, the trust, to bring that back up, the trust in the person that, that they'll choose what's best for them, hmm. which in turn will be what's best for the church as a whole, because they'll be doing what's healthiest for them, what they feel God's calling them to do. And a church should be, should have the faith that each individual is being called on an individual path that may look different from each other. And we don't need to have cookie cutter molds of what is healthy and what it means to follow God, because we don't know what they're being taught or being told to do or led to do. Hmm. So very hands-off and free guidance. Yeah. That's what I think. That's really interesting. And I really liked earlier when you were talking about the mistakes thing because, mm -hmm. you know, so much of the hands-on, <laughs> the holding of the hand yeah. is to prevent the mistake from mm -hmm. happening. And like you said, within a Christian context, like and by Christian context, I mean within truly believing someone else has Christ in them, a mistake sure. isn't... I don't think something to fear uh, as much as something that God will work through as well. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's really, yeah, very interesting. And I'm sure, you know, the practical application of that would be kind of tricky to pinpoint down, but I, I love that idea of the, 
the guidance being available of, of kind of maybe being able to offer wisdom perhaps to people um, mm-hmm. without control over people. Yeah, and that is, you said tricky to pin down. That yeah. is why, where we get so caught up. And I don't, I sympathize to an extent at the fundamental level with leaders who are dealing with this. Not, not always where they end up going with that, but where they get stuck, I sympathize. And that mm. is because a hands-off approach results in less control. Yeah. It means you have less rain, which can be scary. If one, if you, if you're, if you want a lot of control in a greedy way with unhealthy way, right? That's a problem because you don't want to give up control in the most sincere of circumstances where you just want to make sure that your church is being led in the right direction to have no rain on that. An ultimate say of kind of where people are choosing individually to go. It can be very scary because you can't foresee to an exact decimal where you're going to end up a month from now, six months from now, a year from now. Hmm. Um, so control is a big thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, could we just briefly go over Cry Night, which I actually... Yes. Did. I <laughs> was looking back through the book and I highlighted that and I think there's so much there. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, could we just touch on that and then, um, yeah, and then maybe talk about sure. some aspects of it. So Cry Night, okay. If you're listening to this and have no idea what Cry Night is, <laughs> um, I'm so jealous of you. No, oh, yeah. Um, Okay, so in my church, growing up, uh, it was not called Cry Night. We called it Confession Night. Okay. And it wasn't in middle school. It was only in the four years of high school at high school church camp, which we called teen camp. At middle school, it was pre-teen camp, whole different campus, whole different whatever. Teen camp was high school. And at teen camp, during the four and a half days you were at camp, on the third night there would be confession night where every night we'd have a worship session. Every night we'd have a lesson. But on Thursday night, on the third night, after the worship session, after the lesson, we would break off into our cabin groups, go to some secluded place separate from anybody else, and we would, in a group, go around and confess our sins to each other. Mm. Which, um, okay, like in that context, in a Christian community, that's confessing your sins is is a healthy thing to do that you're, you know, like God asks us to confess our sins. Great. Fine. I guess on a, on a very simple level. Okay. Confessing your sins. This can be a good thing. A healthy thing to get off your chest. Sure. Okay. Yeah. This night became or was an institutional thing that came with once again, the idea of pressure. Um, you were not forced to do this, but no one I knew ever opted out because we knew that if we did, we would be looked at with a lot of um, disregard and, oh, you, you failed to rise up to this challenge. And a big part of this was that it was very heavy on emotion. So that night, the worship session, for some reason, I never quite knew until later, but I always recognized was that the worship songs that night were a lot of like the songs that we knew as a camp, like like the heavy hitters, like the songs that we had come to acknowledge as like, though, though that's a good song. They bring that up once in a blue moon because that's like supposed to be the best song with the best, whatever. Mm-hmm. They brought the heavy, heaviest songs, the, the, the longest songs with the you know, recurring bridges over and over and more choruses and, and the, the emotional songs. They brought out these ones that hit deeper and were more intense and more emotional. And 
it always felt like because it aligned with the confession, I always felt like mm, that seems a little bit something, a little bit, a little bit inauthentic. I don't know what it was. Mm. Once I left, I realized that many churches have a night like this, um, but they usually call it cry night, which it's a pretty on the nose term because the expectancy is in these nights that you will end up in tears. You will end up crying. Mm. Um, and it doesn't always involve confession like my church did, but it involves usually I've heard stories of that day of people that entire day, like the sports you do that day and the activities are more exhaustive. Um, the night, the night before you're, uh, made to stay up a little bit later. So you're more tired. Mm. Um, it can get really weird. And the worship session is always huge. There's usually altar calls, which we didn't have at our church, but altar calls, that's the moment you see in, in certain movies and certain, you know, whatever where the really intense moments where there's big emotional outpourings and expressions and the altar call and people are, are on their knees and sweating and crying, that kind of stuff. Mm. And that can be a big margin too of the extremity of that. Um, but these nights I came to learn where many people have recognized the kind of manipulation that can happen there. Mm. Um, I've had there, I was on a Reddit thread talking about different people's experiences with this. And one person even said how their camp had these big TV screens around camp in their most public areas that were playing, if you know the movie The Passion of the Christ, oh my God. Mel Gibson, oh my God. it was playing just the torture scenes oh. on loop in these public places just to get people in that that vulnerable mindset and predisposition for that night. Um, and this goes into, a, you know, many different things. Manipulation is not good. And these emotional expectancies, there's a pressure to cry yeah. because many people, if they don't end up experiencing external emotion, they feel like they didn't quite get it. Yeah. They didn't feel like they felt God. They didn't, cause they, they were told that God is equated with emotion. The Holy spirit is with you. If you're crying, if you're feeling emotion and, mm. I don't really feel it. So maybe I'm not getting God. And there's a guilt there and a shame. Yeah. Um, but a lot of things like that. But this emotional thing, that's cry night. <laughs> yeah. It's so fascinating. And actually, it's kind of a little cringy for me because I've led worship in the past. And I not exactly this exact thing, but I remember sure. we had service at the end of the day. And we always were like, come on, someone. Like, come on, give us something. And it was yeah. like, so it's just such an interesting thing to think of. I think, you know, my intentions, as I think back on it, I was like, I really do want them to experience God. So to some degree, I'm like, I think manipulation happens. And I'm wondering how much of it is even cognitive of the, you Mm -hmm. know, or conscious of the manipulators. Right. But it's like, to what degree uh, is it something of God? And to what degree is it that our brains truly are (laughs) more exposed when we're exhausted? And like, you know, and so I guess, do you have any thoughts on... I guess, what what do you think, what role does emotion play or should emotion play in our in our church communities as far as being able to kind of create these environments? Is that mm-hmm. a bad thing? Is that always a bad thing? Is there a place or is, is it, should we stay away from it? Trying to create, I guess really it comes with worship often. Sure. Um, but like mm-hmm. this is kind of the extreme example. So yeah, what, what place do you think that has, if any? That's a great question. I think... First off, I think um, any emotion 
is great if it's authentic. Hmm. If it's authentic emotion, I don't care if it's a lot of it or none of it. If it's authentic to how you feel, great. Um, and in terms of leading and fostering the environments that promote this or, or whatever, I, I said this in my episode on Cry Night, actually. I said it's one thing to expect emotion. Like if you're a church worship leader and you're going to do these songs, you're like, oh, those songs make me emotional. I'm sure we can expect people to be emotional, you know, in the room to feel the emotion. Great. Mm. I expect it, but it's another thing to force it, Mm. right? If you're trying to intentionally set up the environment to cater solely to emotion with no regard for actually what it is that's making people emotional. Like I have heard stories of people who were on the, the lights team for the lights during a service. And they were instructed specifically to do the lights in a certain way during this certain song because they knew that people in certain places in the auditorium would get emotional with it because it's a, it's a more of an emotional overload. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain songs, um, certain churches that I won't mention, but, but have been outed for um, structuring their songs in the writing process and the instrumental process when putting it together to be ones that that really dive into your emotion, which I get songs are emotional anyway, so I understand that. Um, but these ones, these Christian songs, which the focus I believe should be just saying things about God and worship. That's what worship's supposed to be. Hmm. These songs were, 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 their main priority was structuring them around the emotion rather than what they were saying or what they were promoting. That's fasc- um, a fascinating observation. And there's, a, there's a thin line there because a lot of that overlaps in, a, in an okay way. But when it veers more towards that being the only goal, that can really cause some problems. Mm, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think expecting it is fine. And when it happens, if it's authentic, it's fine. But forcing it and equating that with equating emotion with experiencing God is a red flag because mm. that's not always how it works. This yeah. is not. Um, but yeah, I think those are the biggest things. Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. And actually, as a side note, I've done songwriting and I tried to do Christian songwriting and it was very difficult for me. Um, And I don't know why still, but I Hmm. wonder if that's part of it because there's this feeling of there's a like you said, even with your experience at the church, there's just so much more on the line because it's like I can write an emotional song. But what if I get something wrong about God or what if Mm -hmm. they're not feeling what they need to feel to be saved? You know, it's like so much pressure and a sense of almost unsafety kind of underlying some of this i think oh songs get canceled like songs get thrown out because of one line that they don't believe is completely biblically in line oh my goodness yep anyway as we're wrapping up is there anything else you'd like to share with us especially maybe about people who are in the same camp as you but maybe not quite as uh, far along on the journey as you especially people sure. who would still identify as christian don't know exactly what to think of church not maybe sure what they're thinking of god in the moment is there anything yeah that yeah. you would share i mean it's been really cool since my book came out and since my podcast came out i've been hearing regularly from just a lot of people people i know people i don't know people i grew up with people from my old church um, so I've been able to have a lot of conversations and it's been great just to hear and get perspective of people going through a lot of the same stuff. Cause a lot of us go through the, this, 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 my book and my story is very individual to me, but it's very similar to many people's experiences, different aspects for sure. Yeah. Um, and 
one of the biggest reasons I wrote the book, did the podcast, is doing this work is because the thing I want to promote is the idea to these people, to anybody, that if you're experiencing this stuff, you're experiencing the uncertainty, the doubt, the, the hurt, the wounds, the unknowing, the crumpled papers, trying to decipher and discern these ideas, what's good, what's not. Um, you're not crazy, first of all. That's why I always say you're not crazy. People think they're crazy. I thought I was crazy because in some environments, you're kind of gaslighted into thinking that you, may be, you might be crazy, and mm-hmm. you're not. It's on you because you're going this way, and you're, you're being pulled off the track here. That's weird because everyone else is online, in line here. Mm-hmm. So you're not crazy. Um, this is very normal. And you're also not alone, right? That's those are the two huge. Those those are huge for me. Have been huge for many people I talk to. Is you're not crazy and you're not alone. So those are the things that I really try to promote with what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, and it's so needed. Austin, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Tell us, uh, tell our listeners where they can find you. Yes. Um, so I am on. Primarily on Instagram, Austin, A-U-S-T-I-N underscore Noel, N-O-L-L. Uh, come on there. Send me a message. I'd love to talk. I love, I love, I mean, I tell everyone this. I just love talking about it because it's hard stuff to talk about, but it's in my zone. And I'm, I love discussing it and seeing people navigate it and helping them navigate that stuff because I'm doing the same thing for me. I'm not, I'm still navigating. I always will be. And it's a process that when there's a relationship and community involved, it can bring a lot of healing and a lot of value. So come say hi to me on Instagram. And, and then my book is on Amazon, uh, jumble of couple papers. And lastly, um, what I've been doing a lot recently, my book has been written. That's been out. My podcast. Now the crumpled papers podcast has been taking the chapters of the book and making them individual episodes with guests to delve into just the topics further. And it's been such a great conversation so far. We're on episode eight and we're going through the first season, going to be 23 chapters of the book. So 23 episodes and it's been awesome. So uh, anywhere, anywhere podcasts are, you'll find the crumpled papers podcast. Awesome. Well, thank you for taking the time to do this. I think my listeners are going to find it very helpful and very encouraging. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. If this episode was meaningful to you, please consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash deconstructing the myth so that episodes like today's keep coming.